Hi, everybody. So, it's uh, Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I have Scott, is it Henning? Hennig. Hennig. Scott Hennig on the line. Uh, and he is going to explicate at uh, uh, astonishing levels of detail the uh, issues with Canadian, with the Canadian national debt. Those of you who thought it was dealt with in the 90s, better think again. Just so people understand, uh, who, who understand that Che Guevara was not necessarily a nice communist, not that there's many such things, would you like to just explain the, uh, the shirt so people got a good clear view of that? There we go. Uh, it's Shay. Got my my Shay Thatcher shirt on. Yeah, so uh, uh, Shay Guevara with the Liberty Bell overstarch haircut, uh, matronly shoes, and a pension for public union busting. So, I just really right. wanted to clear that. Now, before we start, maybe you can tell me a little bit about yourself and your organization, and uh, how that all hangs together. Sure. Yeah. My name is Scott Hennig. I'm I'm the National Communications Manager, but also the Alberta Director for uh, Yeah Canadian Taxpayers Federation. We're the largest. Uh, Taxpayer Advocacy Group in Canada. We're uh, 70,000 strong. We were established in 1990 with a uh, merger of the Saskatchewan Association of Taxpayers and the Resolution 1 Committee in Alberta, which was a group fighting for balanced budget law federally, a law we're, we're still fighting for. Um, and uh, since then, we've been we've been out fighting what, what we think is the good fight for lower taxes, uh, less government waste, and more government accountability. Right. And of course, I'm sure that next up is to try and get Alberta in line with the rest of Canada by introducing a sales tax uh, at the provincial level, because I know you guys feel really left out of not being able to even guess how much stuff actually costs at the cash register just by looking at the tag. So uh, I'm sure that's on the list. Very, very high. Yes. Well, you know, actually, there is a good debate going on right now in Alberta about eliminating our income tax for a sales tax. But uh Frankly, uh, you know, you don't you don't rock the boat when things are pretty good. So uh, we we leave that alone, and so do most Albertans. Right, right. So for Canadians, and of course, we have an election coming up, and for our other friends around the world who may think, uh, in terms of national debt, of you know, Portugal, Ireland, Spain, America, Japan, uh, Canada doesn't often make the list when it comes to national indebtedness plus unfunded liabilities. But as far as what I've read, we are in a fairly deep hole and digging with uh, atomic shovels. Is that a fair way to put it? <laughs> yes. I mean, our, our, our debt has not grown any faster in Canada than it did the last two years. So this year, it's actually, to be honest, we don't even know how fast it's growing right now because we don't have a budget. Um, we, you know, there, there was no budget passed as of, as of April 1st. So uh, we're guessing sort of based on uh, former projections, but... Uh, 2009-10, uh, were the fastest two years in Canadian history of, of the growth of our debt. They grew faster and, and larger in those two years than we saw at any other period. Even when you start adjusting for, uh, for inflation population growth, uh, we are, we are burying, uh, ourselves in debt compared to even during the world wars. I mean, most people think, okay, you know, fine, you're going to go into, to debt if you have, uh, you know, war or famine, that sort of thing. Uh, when we did have world wars, we went to debt very quickly, but it pales in comparison to, to how fast we're going in now. And when you do do the comparison, you start looking at, inter, at international comparisons and you take total debt, uh, do, so, and, and you take total, total debt to GDP, uh, we're right at, right in the middle of the pigs. I mean, you have, uh, you have, you have Greece is certainly ahead of us. Um, you know, they're at, at like 126% of, of their GDP in terms of total, uh, total debt. Uh, you run into uh, other ones like like Italy. I think Italy is right in, in the uh, the high high nineties. Um, 
but both uh, Spain and and Portugal are are I think just below Canada in terms of pu- public indebtedness as a as a as a total of the GDP. Uh, we're right around the U.S. U.S. is right around eighty six percent, eighty five percent. We're just below them around eighty four and a half, eighty five percent. Now, to be fair, the trending lines though are moving forward into into twenty eleven, twenty twelve, thirteen. Uh, if if the government can stick to its real projections of, of getting us back to balanced budget by 2014 or 2015, we will start <laughs> heading down Sorry. While, while those other countries still head up. I know. If, if you can believe it. <laughs> the government, you, right, right. Sorry, sorry. Uh, I, I'll try to keep my professional straight face on, but please continue. <laughs> no, but I mean, that's exactly it. I mean, uh, last time the government ran uh, temporary deficits, they lasted for 27 years. I mean, that's what happens is that, that governments don't balance their budget as often as they, as, uh, as they do. I mean, it, it happens. Uh, we, we know that they're not going to balance their budget as, as often as, as, uh, as, as they, as they will. And, and frankly, um, if things go really well and the government does cut spending and, and they, 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 they can actually get things back in order, we'll be doing better than the pigs. We'll be doing better than the U S um, but that's, I mean, that's sort of like, uh, you know, that's sort of like, like comparing yourself to the worst of the worst. I mean, uh, you know, so what you're doing, you're doing better than, uh, you know, you're, you're no longer a, a serial killer. You're just, uh, you know, a thug who likes to beat people up. I mean, it's okay. Yeah. All right. Fair, fair enough. You're not as, you're not as bad as, as some, but uh, it's nothing to be proud of really where we're at right now. All right. And, uh, you know, libertarian minded people never we're never happy to be vindicated because we always assume the worst from government. I, I'm saying we. I don't know if you're a libertarian or not. Right? I am. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. So, so we always assume the worst, and we're always told that uh, we are uh, chicken littles running around crying out that the sky is falling, and we're always right. Uh, and you hate to be right in this kinds of you know, like an oncologist with a you know, oh, I think you've got cancer. Damn, I hate to be right, but you know that's the fact. Because mm-hmm. I remember back in the nineties. When there was some progress being made towards the elimination of deficits, um, simply because I think it was 30 or 40 cents on the dollar was going just to pay the interest on the uh, national debt. And I remember everyone saying, ah, you know, you had this doom and gloom thing, but look, they're turning it around and it's getting better and there's no particular problem and, and so on. And I said, yeah, okay, so there's a temporary retrenchment because they can't bribe enough special interest groups because they're bribing too many bankers with interest payments. I knew it was going to come back because the fundamental structural problems of public choice and the bribocracy of being able to print and borrow money to bribe special interest groups at the expense of the future, that fundamental imbalance remains embedded within the system, which means you may get improvements in the short run, but in the long run, the trend is always going to return. Uh, Is that sort of what happened in your opinion or is there something else that I'm missing? No, you're you're right. I mean, uh, we did make some 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 big headway. I mean, what you're right. It was 38 cents of every single dollar uh, back in I think it was 95 was going to pay just the interest on the debt uh, due to lower interest rates, due to them them actually balancing the budget for 11 years, due to them actually paying down 105 billion dollars worth of of, of debt. Uh, those were down to around 13, 14 cents. Now again, a, a big chunk of that is the fact that we weren't borrowing anymore at, at 20 percent. We were borrowing at at four percent. So just you know the sheer fact of of them refinancing debt got got those numbers back down. But um, you know right now we're we're sitting back still at around uh, 561, 562 billion dollars of debt. Um, probably within this next month, we're going to see that cross back over the the high water mark that we hit in '97. Now, we thought we'd hit it uh, back in in uh, in March, 
Uh, we thought we'd hit the high water mark of 562 billion 881 million, uh, but thankfully the government, uh, instead of you know borrowing 45 billion dollars this year, they only borrowed 40. You know, thank goodness. Uh, so we didn't quite hit the high water mark yet, but they delayed it by three or four months. And that's all that that really happened. So we we basically in in all of two and a half years, we will have borrowed back every single dollar we paid off in debt between 1997 and 2008. Uh, you know, three, three different prime ministers who paid off debt all wiped out in two and a half years. And in a way, that's impressive. In, in horrible, you know, like uh, Nazgul filling the sky with their dark wings, it is sort of impressive. But I think one of the things that people don't get about Canadian history uh, mm -hmm. is, is how rapid the growth of this debt was and how specific it was. Uh, you know, Pierre Elliott Trudeau inherited a, de a debt of $20 uh, billion. And by the time he left office, it was $200 billion. The interest on that alone pushed yeah. it to $400 billion by the 80s and 90s. So for most of, of the history of, of Canada, debt was very small. Even as you say, there were world wars, there were depressions, there were booms and busts, but the debt remained very small. With the introduction of very socialist policies in the 60s under Pearson uh, and under um, uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, we became a society that could only survive through debt. And I think fundamentally that's because it's very hard to bribe people with their own money because you have to keep a cut. You know, it's like if I say, I'm going to give you a thousand dollars as a gift, but I just need to give you, f for you to give me 1500 bucks first and then I'll give you a thousand bucks. Well, you're not going to feel like it's much of a gift. And given that democracy, when you get socialized, tends to be about giving people that are bribing them with their own money, that only works if you borrow because if you just taking taxes and giving people back a portion of those taxes and keeping a chunk for yourself in terms of administrative overhead, it doesn't work at all. And so borrowing is fundamental to paying off, uh, to bribing voters. And, and that really started in the 60s after a century and a half or more of relative indebtedness. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. I mean, we really saw the big spike happen under Trudeau in, in the 70s. Um, it and it did. It rocketed. I mean, there's there's a video we put up on YouTube that goes through uh, Canada's debt history, and you can see it, it. It trends very low, very low, and then it spikes in the 70s, and then it, it kind of flattens off, and then it spikes again over the last two years. So, um, legitimately, uh, the government right now, and and I, I don't want to blame the government because it's it's all frankly it is all MPs, and I don't I don't want to be I don't want to sound partisan or anything because we're not we're a nonpartisan organization. But legitimately, in 2008, when when the the conservative government brought forward their their economic update, it didn't have in the fall. It didn't have really any stimulus spending, any deficit projections. Uh, you know, it did have a thing where they killed the party subsidies, and and the politicians on the other side hated that idea. But they used uh, lack of of stimulus spending, as they call it. I mean, that, that's the whole the new euphemism. It's it's it's. Uh, Debt spending is stimulus spending, so it's somehow better. Well, it but does any stimulate the debt. So, well, it does. That's all it stimulates, and I can get into that. But the, you know, the the uh, the other parties came forward and said, you know, you're not doing enough uh, stimulus spending, uh, and and asked them to to borrow and, and or they're going to take down the government. So I blame all of them. I blame every single MP because there wasn't. I don't think there was a single MP in 2009 that voted against that budget that that, that started this process. So well. All 
Well, I think that's true. Certainly politicians uh, have a large part of the blame, but I would say that the political impulse to shower bribes upon the Canadian voters is matched equally by the grasping hands of Canadian voters and other voters in the West who seem relatively content to get 2 or $3 worth of services for every dollar that they're paying in taxes, even though we kind of know deep down it's kind of a sleazy interaction and it's harming the future. Uh, I think that we also need to hold up the mirror to Canadians and say you all need to re- we all need to reevaluate what it is that we expect from government, what we can fiscally reasonably expect to receive from government and begin to look at some of these entitlements and to stand up for the safety of the future and work to reduce this debt now. So, uh, yeah, I think there's a giver, but there's also a receiver who's part of the equation as well. Well, I think two points on that. One, even at the the height of the the big economic reset, the Great Recession, as they were calling it, which really in Canada was a a nine-month technical recession. It was such a such a minor dip uh, that, that, that they could barely even technically call it a recession. But anyways, I mean, regardless, they're still at that at the height of that. You still had 50 percent of the population in Canada believe that government shouldn't be borrowing money, should be balancing their budgets. Uh, but you didn't have a single MP that was willing to vote that way. So, I mean, I think there was a bit of a disconnect, even if it's still, you know, we still might have got outvoted on, on, on uh, you know, borrow versus not borrow if it came down to uh, a straw poll of, of, of Canadians. But there still was a huge chunk and there wasn't that voice in parliament uh at least pushing back on it second point on that i mean yes i mean canadians in general get uh, even without the debt they get more than they they pay for i mean if you look at um you know the top 10 percent of wage earners in canada pay something like 52 percent of all the taxes in canada so you know even even we well, forget about debt even in, in general uh, people should know, and I don't know if they do know, frankly, that, that uh, I, actually, I, I'm fairly certain they don't know that, uh, that, that the, the top 10% in, of income earners are the ones who are paying the, uh, the vast majority of, of services for the rest of us. So I'm not sure that's something they understand, but it, it, it is something. I think the debt part, they probably do get it. Uh, and I think that there is, um, this, is, this, is a very, this is a very scary future problem for us as those who are going to be paying off the debt become less, and those who are going to be driving up the debt are going to become more. Just are, 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 oh, uh, demographically, you mean? Just demographics. You're going to have a third of the population, if not more, not working, not contributing taxes, uh, but yet demanding more and more and more services that need to be paid for by someone else. So either we're going to see massive tax increases or massive debt increases that are just tax deferrals. Someone has to pay it eventually. Uh, and I think you might end up seeing uh, generational fighting. Uh, and, and where we're right now, we have left-right fighting on the political spectrum. It could be age-based coming coming in the, the near future where you have the massive chunk of the voting population. And those who do vote in droves, seniors, demanding more and more services and knowing that they have the political strength, the political uh, uh, numbers, frankly, to uh, to make the rest of us pay for it. And you have people who don't go out and vote, people who are who are the ones who are the future wage uh wage earners and taxpayers who don't vote, who aren't interested in engaged in politics right now, uh, seeing their taxes creep up or at least seeing the debt load creep up and have them have to uh, eventually pay for it once they're, uh, once they're getting in their, you know, the, the, their 40s and 50s. I mean, I, I think that we do have a, uh, a very serious disconnect that once someone figures this out, once the seniors figure out that they can make the rest of us pay, we're going to pay. And so, I mean, that's, that's a, maybe a, a getting onto a bit, bit of a different topic, but uh, debt financing is not going away unless we uh, unless we we take some real st- very strict strong action very quickly here to 
uh, ban it, to, to make constitutional changes to, uh, to ban governments from going in debt less, uh, unless they're in, in, in some sort of uh, war situation or, or massive natural disaster. Yeah, and I think also, given that Canadian birth rates have been declining significantly, there is also going to be an issue where the government is going to try and make up the tax base through immigration. And mm-hmm. immigrants who have not been part of the system are probably going to feel a bit strange paying for all of these uh, older Canadians to retire in comfort while they're struggling to get their families started without that same kind of history or the social compact or contract or whatever. That's just a theoretical, but it may be cultural as well as age-related, if that makes any sense, or pro- probably both. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're right. I think that uh, um, you know, the people that are coming to the country, I mean, in fact, I, I've heard a stat recently that talked about about half, I think, of all new millionaires in Canada. Uh, are people that have immigrated here in the last uh, last five years? So as their wealth and their their uh, economic uh, prosperity grows with with uh, new newcomers to Canada, yeah, I think you're right. I think they are going to be uh, resenting the fact that uh, that the taxes are going to be going up or, or debt loads are going to be going up, which again is just deferred taxes, uh, so that they can pay for for other people's uh, services. I mean, there there could you're right. I think there could they could be uh, you could have new immigrants and young people. Of pushing back against uh, against seniors in, in this country who uh, uh, who are going to be demanding more and more services uh, with with less and less of their own money. Right now, in America, the debate about deficit reduction, which sounds like you're actually getting somewhere, but what you actually want is debt reduction, not deficit. Deficit reduction is a good thing, but it actually means you're just going into debt slower. But uh, there are sacred cows in America that you can't really talk about. And of course, uh, the three major ones are Social Security, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, and defense. And if Americans aren't willing to tackle those issues, then they're just not going to make any progress. Everything else is just crumbs off the table. What, in your estimation, are the sacred cows that Canadians aren't willing to talk about when it comes to the amount of... um, uh, either government spending reduction or tax increases that are going to be necessary to start making a dent to this debt in any meaningful way. Yeah, I think you're right. I think I think healthcare is is a big one in Canada that that people don't want to talk about. Uh, I mean, we, it's it's the continues to be the fastest growing sector of of, uh, of government spending, and in many provinces, it's it's up around fifty percent of of every dollar spent is on healthcare. Um, no one wants to really talk about that or look at alternatives. Um, we some we somehow seem to believe. I mean, I find I find healthcare funny in Canada because you know, if, if you're buying a car, you can go test drive ten different cars and say, okay, I like that car better than this car. When it comes to healthcare, Canadians don't know whether they have it good or whether they have it bad. They just been told they have it so good. Uh, they assume they have they've been test driving the best car and and no no point driving anything else. Well, in reality, we're driving uh, you know a, a beat up uh, 2002 uh, Chevy Cavalier when everyone else is driving. Uh, new Lexuses and and uh, the U.S. is a terrible example to look at for healthcare because you know they're frankly not getting a getting a much better healthcare system than we are. But you know the countries that do have very good healthcare systems uh, like France, uh, like like, G- like Germany, like Japan, um, you know they all have mixed systems. They all have a private uh, competitive uh, healthcare system that is, that is competing with their universal coverage. And you know they don't have things like government websites set up to track wait lists. Because there are no wait lists, right. you know. Yet, yet we're here focused on making sure that we have the best new technology to make sure that everyone knows exactly it's going to be twenty-four months till you can get your hip replaced. Well, you know, good for us for putting together a website on that. Maybe we should try to actually fix uh, uh, getting people actually uh, hip replacements when they need them. I mean, it's that is a big sacred cow. No one wants to touch it, but I think our court system and um, 
I think there is, it's starting to move a little bit. I mean, the, uh, I remember even 10 years ago when you started asking people, if you'd get saying that they were okay with that. We're, we're getting right around 50% now. So it's moving, but our politicians are scared out of their mind to even talk about it, let alone, let alone, let alone make any changes. So we're seeing backdoor changes happen in places like BC and Quebec, where in, in Quebec case, it, it's, it's uh, the courts that have sort of forced it. But in BC's case, it's sort of been by stealth. But anyways, that, that's a big one that, that is a, a sacred cow that people don't want to touch. The other one too is, is retirement ages. Uh, we're starting to see retirement ages change in, in, uh, in European countries, uh, they're starting to move them up now. Some of them they're moving them from 60 to 65, where where you know where they're they were well behind where we are. But legitimately, I mean, when when the CPP was created in Canada, the average uh, lifespan was like 63 years old. I mean, we weren't expecting people to be living long enough to even collect it. Now, when the, those numbers are in their late 70s or 80s, uh, we haven't adjusted that that retirement age. I mean, I mean, even if you just do the math on, if you don't work for your first 20 years of life, you're not contributing to uh, to uh, to 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 the you know to the the overall wealth of the country, and you don't work for your last well, I don't know thirty or so years of your life, um, you're you're not working for more than half of, of the the time that you're uh, you know that you need these services paid for. So someone else is having to pay for it, and you know that's a that's a sacred cow. I mean, I, I know that even with our supporters, a lot of our supporters who uh, you know they 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 know intellectually that we need to you know, do something with retirement benefits, uh, they're not willing, they're not really that willing to look at, at increasing the, uh, the the retirement age, which is something that we have to talk about. And the longer we wait, uh, the less likely it's ever going to happen because they're going to be 30, 40, 50% of the population, people who are, are, are of retirement age, and they're never going to want to change that. Well, and of course, uh, it has to be a forward-looking policy because you can't move the goalpost for somebody who's three days away from retiring. There has to be a grace period. And of course, as you say, if more people are thundering over that retirement bulge, moving the goalpost afterwards doesn't make uh, nearly as much sense. No. Uh, What about um, uh, education, welfare? Um, I know Canada's military spending is relatively low. Uh, though we are bogged down in these ridiculous wars uh, in the Middle East. But um, uh, are there any other sacred cows that you find particularly sensitive with people? Welfare has been pretty controversial in Canada, um, less so than in the United States, but more so, I think, than in other countries. But um, uh, are there any other areas where people just won't go to, to look at cats? Yeah, well, I would say that, that another form of welfare, uh, equalization, is uh, is mm. one that no one wants to touch. I mean, I... I Sorry, just you know, for our non-Canadian or non-up-to-the-boring-Canadian <laughs> politics speed, uh, equalization are payments that are designed to take from the half provinces, uh, in other words, those who are above a certain fairly arbitrary line, skim uh, money off them and give it to the half-not provinces. I think, what are we, down to two half-provinces now uh, and, and uh, yeah. eight uh, who are on the take? Yeah, I think it's just Saskatchewan and, and Alberta right now are haves, and everyone else is have-nots. Uh, um, I mean, Ontario—that's the scariest part of this whole thing—is that you know we have uh, a third of our population considered to be not, uh, a have-not province now, which which was our economic engine for for decades. So that that's that is frightening um, for for the future. But regardless, I mean, I think there is uh, there's a view in in certain provinces. I mean, there's, actually, there's a view in in quite a few provinces that they either hate it like in Alberta uh, no matter what happens they they think that it, they're getting they're getting hosed and they want this ended and then you've got a bunch of Atlantic uh, Canadian provinces who view it as being sort of a birthright that it was it was part of a 
a right the, of joining confederation. I mean, they actually do view it as this was a deal for us to join the country as sure. you agree to pay this. Yeah, I know. Uh, I mean, and, if, you, if you're bribed into something, that bribery has to continue. Otherwise, it becomes immoral. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Yeah. Well, that's exactly it. So breaking that, I mean, it, it's here we view it as a government program. Uh, the, you know, and, and government programs are, are to be, you know, changed and switched and moved and, and altered. Uh, in some places of the country, it's viewed as a, as a fundamental right, uh, like a human right of some sort. And that is very hard to break. And, and you know, we, we've got, I, you're going to see, I think you're starting to see the, the seeds of, of some pretty significant jealousy growing. Uh, Quebec is a good example. When you have uh, $7 a day daycare, you have basically, you know, very cheap or free tuition at universities. And a lot of that is is because they're getting fairly generous equalization payments, and you have people who are you know in in, in Western Canada who have largely been paying some of those, or even in Ontario who have been paying some of those payments, who who don't have seven dollar a day daycare, who don't you know have some of the highest tuition for for universities in the country. Granted, still seventy five percent of it's covered by government, but you know, anyways, it's it's. Uh, you know, we forget about that little that little uh, little part of it. But anyways, they there is starting to be those seeds of jealousy being being uh, uh, pitting different parts of the country against each other. But it's a big chunk of money. It's it's a good chunk of money that uh, that we as an organization we've been we've been pushing for them to start replacing equalization payments with a debt repayment matching program. So uh, you know if 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 New Brunswick wants to pay off. Uh, their debt, well, then the federal government will will match any debt repayment they make, so that they can start cutting back on their interest payments and and actually uh, actually get themselves out of some of these holes. But we have created a welfare wall. When I was in New Brunswick for their budget, it was it was amazing to look through their their documents and see that every single time they're trying to become more self self reliant and independent, so they're they're cutting spending, they're raising taxes, they're doing these things that uh, make them you know unpopular as a government. I mean, no one you know, no government likes to cut spending or raise taxes. But every time they do that, they see their their transfer payments go back, back down, and they're not really getting any further ahead. They're becoming more self sufficient. But as a politician, really, is is that what uh, you know? Are are you benefiting? Are you are you are you gaining friends? Are you are you going to be uh, getting people uh, voting for you again? Because you're making hard decisions, but you're not getting yourself any further ahead. I mean that that is a huge welfare wall that we've created for these uh, these provinces who we've uh, got addicted to transfer payments and, and equalization. Yet, right. So if they try uh, to balance their own budget, they simply get less money in these equalization payments, which means yeah. that it's like the guy on welfare who wants to get a part time job, but it's just going to cut his welfare payments. So in a sense, what's the point, right? Exactly. That's exactly. We created our own welfare wall when it comes to to our provinces. Uh, a question that I have. Uh, I was uh, a, um, a libertarian and a minarchist for many years, and I have, uh, over the last few years, made the transition to looking at the possibility of a stateless society. Don't mean to shock you, but um, and the reason for that is how? Okay, I can't find any way past the incentive problem, and of course, the initiation of force problem around taxation. But uh, you obviously have a good deal of enthusiasm and I would imagine a fair degree of optimism about what it is that you're doing. And, uh, you know, share with me some of those drops of blood so that I, you know, so that I can feed from them. But help me understand uh, how, given the structural problems, given the lack of education that people have about uh, basic uh, economics, uh, given the public choice problems, given the concentration of benefits versus the diffusion of costs problem uh, and uh, the, the demographic problem and the immigration problem and so on, where do you think you know it's going to go? And, and you know, I don't mean to impugn the work that you're doing, but if you had to sort of roll you know uh, some some money on the table for where you think it's going to go, 
what, what's your prediction for uh, for how Canada is going to to move forward in terms of whether it's going to tackle this debt or not, or whether there's going to be uh, you know, not exactly a Weimar-style hyperinflation, but some sort of either a, a default or uh, some sort of more wrenching change. Do you think there's going to be proactive or do you think it's going to be reactive? Oh, boy. Uh, well, I mean, I, look, I, I, I am an optimist, but I'm also a realist. And um, ultimately, I, I, I do fear that we're... we're um, I fear that we were just in the last couple of years, watching how quickly people were, were able to turn their brains off and start to believe that, uh, that Keynesian economics was, was, was somehow the savior when we know that all of the, uh, when, when, when we, we know that all of the uh, freest, wealthiest, uh, most prosperous people in, in the, the world are living in, in countries where, uh, where freedom and, and economic freedom, particularly not necessarily uh, political freedom, but economic freedom, has been paramount. And, uh, I mean, I, I do though think that ultimately we, we have enough countries around the world that, uh, we could point to as this policy didn't work. This policy did work. This policy didn't work sort of thing. I mean, we can always point to Hong Kong and say, look at Hong Kong. It's this little speck of dust in the middle of, of, uh, nowhere that has no natural resources, but it is free, and the people are, are are the wealthiest and most prosperous in the world there because of their the the, the laws they have uh, not put in place, um, because of the the social programs they have not put in place, and the, and the way the government has has acted. Now, granted, a non democratic country, but still uh, one of the freest, most prosperous places in the world. And I think that as long as we can continue to point to examples of that, of 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 look, they didn't they didn't buy into some Keynesian massive government uh, expansion program. And other countries have and look at how they're failing. Um, I think we're gonna be okay because ultimately people will inherently I think know that uh, that that freedom beats tyranny. And uh, but I maybe I'm just an optimist on that, but I mean there there isn't an example. There is not an example in the world in the history of, of the world where where massive socialism and communism has led to the betterment of, of uh, standards of living in people. So until they get a win, in, until, until you know, the, the utopia in this world is, is a communist nation, I still have, I still have uh, hope that, uh, the, that the right-headed moves will, will be made. And, and you know what? It's going to be incremental, and it's going to be a constant fight. And we're gonna, every single time uh, Keynesian economics and bad policies pop back up, we're going to have to jam Hayek down their throat and, and remind them. And we didn't do it. You know, we didn't do it. We got beat two years ago uh, when, when everyone got on the Keynesian bandwagon, and we weren't expecting. We thought, you know, that we, we thought they knew that balanced budgets were important and that, and that borrowing was – you can't borrow your way to prosperity. But – we, we underestimated the power of of, uh, of the simple soundbite, and, and we didn't do it on our side. So, you know, we must remain ever vigilant. Well, I agree that collectively you can't borrow your way to prosperity, but I would say that there's probably quite a large number of American bankers who feel that the stimulus package was very profitable for them, right? It's the, yeah. it's the concentration of benefits and the disbursement of costs that is so tragic uh, in, in this kind of system. And I agree with you. Keynesianism has been discredited very many times, but it is um, – uh, I remember Hayek wished that he had written more of a rebuttal. I think it was to the general theory of unemployment or whatever. This where Keynesian, oh, if only I'd written that rebuttal. And it's like, I don't believe that was the case because it was so useful 
to the political class to have a justification for increased spending, that they would, you know, even if there'd been some great rebuttal, they still would have championed it. And uh, it is such a great excuse for politicians to spend money, which is what they love to do because it gets them elected and keeps getting them elected. So uh, I agree with you that there is a war of ideas, but the war of pragmatic pillaging of the general body, body politic is, uh, I think, a little bit more immediate to people. Oh, it is. And, and I mean, just again, look at the, the stat of, you know, whatever, top 10% of the population pay 50% of the taxes. As long as we can make someone else pay for our, our services, we will. Um, you know, but, you know, they're, uh, I'm, I'm a Randian and, and uh, eventually you're going you're gonna to choke that golden goose and they're going to walk away. And uh, they've done it in many countries. And, and I, you know, as long as we continue, I think, to make sure people understand how, how well, maybe we need to start making people understand where wealth is created and, and how how prosperity is created. And, and we need to do a better job of it. And part of that is the education system. I think that we uh, we, we definitely need to uh, to force a lot more of, of this type of, of information through our education system. But, you know, I mean, despite the fact that that uh, probably you, probably me, all of us who, who know what's right and uh, know the difference between right and wrong, we're not taught this in school. We somehow found it because I think that it is the natural. It is the natural order. It's the natural way that that, that things work, and and it's you can't fight it. It, it is going to come through no matter what in the end. But uh, but incrementally, we are going to lose some. We're going to lose some, but but we need to look at the, the the big end game. And and I'm I'm still I'm still very hopeful of the the end game. Well, I agree with you. I think that uh, freedom and prosperity and peace will triumph in the long run. And certainly what lies ahead for Western democracies is nowhere near as bad as what lay in the 20th century with grinding fascism and uh, national socialism and communism into the dust. Uh, We're not going to be talking about uh, 10 million dead in one war and 40 million dead in another war. It's not going to be anything like that. So, And, of course, we do have this amazing communications medium, the Gutenberg Press, of our modern-day Christendom, which allows, I think, the dissemination of ideas in a way that was very hard before. So I think that we're well-poised. I think it's going to be a pretty rough transition. It's going to be a pretty <laughs> hard bounce uh, because I think that we are beyond the point where people will are willing to learn with ideas because their economic and immediate self-interest is so bound into the existing system that they may pay some lip service to ideas, but you know we are mammals who want to eat <laughs> and who want to sleep uh, under a roof. So uh, my, mm-hmm. I, I believe that, yeah, it will. We, uh, truth, reason, peace, prosperity, uh, free markets, and so on will absolutely win out in the long run, but I think it's going to be a, a pretty rough transition. Yes, well, you're right. I mean, and when we have uh, so-called free free markets uh, being interfered with uh, with companies that are too big to fail and and that sort of thing, and when we continue to um, allow you know basic market uh, functions to not function, you know, fail- failure is a very blunt instrument. I mean, the free market is a very blunt instrument. And it's not pretty, and uh, but it is nece- is is absolutely necessary, and and uh, should we let the banks fail in the U.S.? Yes. Should they let the car companies fail in in Canada, U.S.? Yes. We should have let all those things fail, and you know what? There would have been uh, a very uh, very significant short term pain for uh, many people, but over the long long run, there everyone would have been better off. And and convincing politicians of that is is. Uh, is going to be difficult, but uh, and convincing those people that are going through the pain is going to be even more difficult. Right. Uh, but as long as the the majority uh, are not, uh, you know, are, are are not going to be the ones who are, are hit by this, or at least see the end game, uh, we'll be okay. But I mean, it, it is there. We're going to have short term losses. I mean, there are, we're going to lose. We are. We just lost the last three years. Uh, we're going to have some more short term losses. 
uh, in terms of uh, in terms of, of becoming a, a freer freer world. I mean, the U.S. just dropped how many points on the the Freedom Index uh, right. over the last couple of years. So I mean, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. We're going to see some some failures, but uh, um, I. Again, I we know it's going to win out, so I'm I'm happy to uh, keep fighting the good fight and and try to make some incremental gains. I think there's a little bit more heroism when things look look darker than than when you're on the upward swing. So you know, yay for us. Uh, and so listen, I, I want to make sure that uh, listeners get your your website and your organizational name so that they can uh, go and contact you if they have a little bit more hope in the uh, system the system's rehabilitativeness than I do. So if you'd like to give those out. Yeah, for sure. Uh, our website is, is taxpayer.com, T-A-X-P-A-Y-E-R.com, where the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, you can uh, uh, get our get our emails. Uh, don't cost you a thing. Get on our uh, our website, sign up for our emails, and start uh, start joining the fight. Thank you so much, Scott. I really, really appreciate uh, the conversation, and uh, I wish you the very best of luck. No, thanks. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Bye.